0: We will be in Genesis chapter 14, and we'll go ahead and begin reading. This is the most unique chapter in the book of Genesis. No other chapter is like this chapter, um, and we'll, you'll begin to see why very quickly. We've been moving through the book of Genesis together, and we are now shifting away from the uh, creation of the universe to the God's setting his affections on a family. Really one person in Abraham and then through his family, how God's plan to redeem all of mankind is through family relationships. And how interesting that'll be, as we see, as we saw last Wednesday, how anytime you work through families, family dynamics have, you know, inevitably come up. Yeah. And uh, we'll talk more about that as we go through. But here in Genesis 14, um, last time we saw lot, a uh, lot was with Abraham and they had gone their separate ways. lot had uh, chosen. Uh, the luscious land near Sodom and Gomorrah. And last time we saw Lot, we kind of thought, wow, okay, I'm sure things are going to go really well for him. He chose the, uh, the job with, that makes the most money. He chose the house with the most comfort. He chose the girlfriend or boyfriend that makes him feel the best. Maybe things are going to go pretty well for Lot there, out there near Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, and so now we're going to kind of continue to read and see what really does happen here uh, with our buddy Lot and how does Abram respond. So in verse 1 of chapter 14, it says, there's going to be a lot of names, so just, just hang in there. We're going, to, we're going to plow through, okay? At that time, when Amrephel was king of Shinar, Arioch was king of Elasar, Kerdoleomer was king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, these kings went to war against Berah, king of Sodom. Birsha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admah, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Berah, that is Zoar, all these latter kings joined forces in the Valley of Sidim, that is, the Dead Sea Valley. For twelve years, they had been subject to Kedorlaomer, but because, but in the thirteenth century they rebelled. In the 14, or in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth in the fourteenth year, Kedorlaomer and the kings allied with him went out and defeated the Rephaites in Ashtaroth, Karnaim, and the Zuzites in Ham, the Emites in Shavet kiriath Taim and the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as El-Paran, near the desert. Then they turned back and went to En-Mishpat, that is, Kadesh, and they conquered the whole territory of the Amalekites, as well as the Amorites who were living in Hazezan-Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Edom, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Belah, that is, Zoar, marched out and drew up their battle lines, against, or battle lines in the valley of Sidim against king of Elam; Tidal, king of Goiim; Amraphel, king of Shinar; and Arioch, king of Elessar. Four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of tar pits. When the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them, and the rest fled to the hills. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food. Then they went away. They also carried off Abram's nephew Lot. And his possessions since he was living in Sodom. A man who had escaped came and reported this to Abram the Hebrew. Now Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre, the Amorite, a brother of Eshcol and Aner, all of whom were allied with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Dan's way far north Israel. During the night... Abram divided his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Haba, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative lot and his possessions, together with the women and other people. After Abram returned from defeating Kedorah Laomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveth, that is the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise to be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, With raised hand I have sworn an oath to the Lord, God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread out of the strap of your sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich." I will accept nothing but what, what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me to Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre. Let them have their share. So a lot of names, a lot of things that we don't necessarily have context for. Uh, thankfully, I've, I've done a bit of that and tried to sum it up in about a 20-second slide. So, um, as we go, good. In a 20-second slide. Slide right about now. So we're talking about, we're talking about war, right? Four kings against five. I think we, we got that part. Here is the area we're talking about, Middle East. You guys see over there? The area we're talking about in the Middle East. Uh, we can even zoom in a bit. This is what we're talking about. Israel-Palestine is where Abram is, where Lot are. The Dead Sea is kind of like near the bottom of the S in Palestine, uh, sort of around that area. The uh, four kings come from over here. We've got four kings. They're all allied together. Ker doleomer, the hard name. He's the, he's the big bad dude. He's the big red crown there. He's from Iraq. Um, and so they all come to go attack Lot and all of the areas of the Dead Sea, the different seas. They come together. They attack. They take Lot with them. Okay? This is where our buddy Abram comes up. He says, not on my watch. So he goes... He does work. He comes back with his friend Lot. The title of my lesson today is Rescue Me. So let's pray. No. The title of my lesson today is Rescue Me. You guys remember that song, 1965? I think flotilla bass, right? Rescue me and take me in your arms. Rescue me. I need your tender charm. Remember that song? Because I'm lonely and I'm blue. I need you and your love to come on and rescue me. Got it. That has nothing to do with our sermon. But it's a great song. And that song was originally written about Jesus. No, it wasn't. Okay. Um, So... It's a wonderful song, 1965. <laughs> Check it out. Um, but the title of my lesson today is Rescue Me. So we got these four. Basically, the text helps us understand that this is an intimidating situation. This is a unique chapter. It, it looks like uh, no other chapter in this whole entire book. Um, we don't get Abram the warrior uh, in any other book, really. But we have these four kings that are allied against, uh, uh, against those in Palestine their, uh, their, their vassal basically didn't, decided not to pay tribute, so they go down and have to deal with that. They strike two crushing defeats. They have a massive army, from what we can tell, and they take away Lot. Um, and as we read the text, even as we read it, you kind of go, I don't understand what's going on. There's a lot of names. There's a lot of locations. But then it says they took Lot with them. And all of us, even today, even as we don't know the area that well, we go, oh, that's not good. Um, Lot seems important, right? He's an important character. If he's taken something, there must be some tension. And of course, Abram decides to intervene. He gets not that many people, 318, even though back then armies weren't by the hundreds of thousands, but it wouldn't have been that much. He, he, He pursues the four kings. And these are not four small areas. You notice it was Turkey, Babylon. I mean, it was Assyria. These are names. These are big baddies. Okay. But Abram is not intimidated by that, he still goes and he saves his, his, his relative Lot. Also, on both sides of this next few chapters, the, two, the section regarding Abram and next week we'll talk about, or after JME, we'll talk about the covenant with Abraham. On both sides are really disgusting, nasty stories about Lot. Uh, lot seems to have a lot of uh, sin in his life. He's got a lot of issues. Later on, it'll be sexual sin. But here earlier, it was really uh, choosing to leave Abram. Choosing to distance himself, choosing to alienate himself from his relative in order for the more comfortable situation. And that, I think, is something that we all can relate to um, today. And I want to talk today about rescuing, what it means to really rescue. You know, as Abram decides, and we don't, we don't get much of an internal dialogue with Abram. It seems he just, he just goes. But for us as Christians, we, have, we are called to be rescuers. And really in two ways. The first way is to rescue those outside the body of Christ, to bring them into the body of Christ. The other way is to rescue those in the body of Christ who are drifting from the body of Christ. Those who are obscuring their life in darkness in some way. And they're, they're hurting, they're weak, they're, they're, they're slowly leaving God. And those are people we also are called to rescue. And so in both those situations, it's easy. I, I feel like this is an important point with Abram is that he doesn't go to this thought of, you know what? lot had this coming. He chose to leave me. He chose the better land. I'm over here with the lesser land. He chose to, he chose to date that person and leave the church. He chose to go take that job with lots of money. She chose that she would want those friends over us. That's not my fault. They did it, but he doesn't. He springs to action to go save. His relative, and not without personal consequence. Rescuing anyone who wants to rescue somebody else, there is an inherent danger that you'll be hurt. Right. You know, a lot of us. I don't know if you guys saw that movie. It was called The uh, Finest Hours. It was a Disney movie, and it was about the 1952 tanker, uh, this ship, basically that uh, in a storm, it was really cold, and this nor'easter basically tore it in half. It had Chris Pine in it, and basically there were. Now you go, oh, I know, I know now. No, no. uh, but no, there's, there's, the ship tears in half. Well, the, the ship to go rescue it, another tanker, tears in half as well. And so they call this basically motor lifeboat captain, this, this you know, Chris Pine in the movie, to go to what's called the most daring Coast Guard rescue ever. 1952, in the middle of this storm, this gale, to go rescue these people in this ship. Now in the movie, he's like, I'm going. But you know who has a problem with him going? His wife has a problem with him going. Why does his wife have a problem? You all know why his wife has a problem. Because she knows there's an inherent danger. Yeah. If you rescue these people, you could die. And that's the problem we all have, I think, when we, when we have a heart to rescue others. Right. If I try to help this person, will I get hurt? Right. If I share my faith at work, how will it go badly for me? Right. If I try to have a conversation about my friend's marriage, will it be awkward? Will it be difficult? Will they cut me off? Right. There's a brother at church who is cut off communication with me, he won't talk to me, there's a sister at church who doesn't want to be anywhere near me. If I try, will they just get madder? Will they just push harder? Will they Any time we want to rescue, there's an inherent fear for most of us. What will happen if I try to rescue? And we see, we'd all love to be like Abram. The other thing is, Abram's not intimidated by the size of the task. A lot of times when we see, how, who can we rescue? How can we help others? We're intimidated. We're fearful of the size of the task. Right. You know, it's, it's just too much. There's too much sin in their life. There's too much going on in their parenting. I, I can't disciple them. Right. I'm, I don't know the answers. So I'm going to let somebody else do it. So sometimes we're so intimidated or someone that we want to evangelize toward. We want to share our faith with. We want to bring them out to know the gospel. But we're so overwhelmed because maybe they're really intellectual. We go, they would never, I don't, what if they ask questions I don't know the answer to? I I can't do that. Let me, let me find a dumber person to reach out to, you know? Uh, And we can think, oh, they're really athletic or their life's going really well or they're really successful or they're not my race or they're not my gender. They're not my ethnicity. It's not going to, we get intimidated, get fearful. Maybe someone's just the fact that they're taller than us or the fact that they're bigger. They look strong. They look angry today. We don't want to share our faith because we're intimidated. That person looks like they're going to kill me. So I'm not going to share my faith with them. Let me find somebody who looks a little bit more pleasant to talk to. Somebody nice and small to reach out to. Uh, And all these fears come into play when we think about rescuing others. And rescuing is really all about intervening on somebody else's behalf. Too often, I think, and even in this lesson, you know what I did? I made a mistake. I got to confess to you guys. Because when I was writing this lesson, I was like, okay, this this, this text, this scripture is really about battle. Okay, it's about the spiritual battle we have within about dealing with sin. That's what I thought at first. And then I read it over and over again. I thought, this isn't about that. But it's interesting that I went there. It's interesting that as a Christian, I thought, you know, our first problem is, is internal. And I think as Christians, as disciples, a lot of times we just get so inward focused. Yeah. We go right to, oh, you know, we gotta, we got to wrestle with sin. I'm not good enough. Once I get this sin dealt with, then I'll be enough. Then I'll be able to. I got issues. I got fear. I got impurity problems. I got pride. I got air. I got to deal with my own heart. I got to fix myself. That's where I went when I read it. And I had to read it again and go, this is about actually rescuing somebody else. Abraham has no shortage of moral issues. What did he just do? And he's gonna do it again later, spoiler alert. He's gonna basically say to his, his friends, hey, my wife's not my wife. Sleep with her if you want. Because he's afraid of himself dying. He wants to, he gives up his wife's honor to save his own self. He is not a great character at this point in the Bible. He's a coward. But he doesn't say, I'm, I'm just, oh, shucks, if I go rescue Lot, I'm, not, I'm, I'm no good. I'm not, I'm not a speaker. I'm not bold. I'm not confident. That's not me. I'm not a Bible talk leader. I'm not like those other people. He doesn't. He goes for it. He strives to go for it. And it's an incredible challenge to all of us. And I began to think, you know what, this passage is about rescuing somebody else. But that's a, that is a perilous endeavor. Because all, all of us, like the, lifeboat, uh, motor, the motor lifeboat captain, We all are fearful. What's going to happen to me? You know, for myself personally, I can tend to think of if I am concerned about somebody else in the church, maybe who's going through something or I think they're going through something. I can go to right. Well, I've tried. I tried. I can quickly give up after. And I have we all have like a set point in our head of like, hey, you should reach out to that sister. She's having a hard week. Well, I texted her. That's all I can do. That's the max I can do. All the effort I could muster. Yeah. It was, "Hi, how are you?" in the text, right? I mean, I can't go beyond that, but we all have like this max cap, this, this ceiling. Yeah. I called her once. That's, it's interesting how we all have these limits. We put these limits on what's good enough, what's loving enough. I think when it's life or death, it's more clear. Like if Abram's like, "I'm going to go, I'm going to check out the size of their army, if they look super intimidating and scary. Uh, There's actually, a lot of times the Bible will say that these people, they're fighting are giants. They're just bigger uh, than the the Jews. The Hebrews were not impressive physically. They're small people, you know. So like, they, but he could have gone and said, let's look, let's gauge the situation. But he, he just goes in fearlessly. And it's an incredible thing. And I began to think, what stops us from having a heart to rescue others deeply and diligently? And I think that's the two things we encounter that are difficult when we want to reach out to somebody else, whether it's evangelizing outside the body or trying to strengthen inside the body or disciple inside the body, we struggle to be deep and we struggle to be diligent. Those are the two things. Like I shared earlier, I tend to give up after a while. I've tried. At this point, her sin's on her head, right? I mean, I, I we kind of give up. But I thought all of us kind of tend to be on one side or the other with this. We tend to be on, on these two sides. and uh, One side is the, the controlling side. Some of us are really controlling. And when I even say, let's go rescue people, you're like, I'm on it. I'm going to get with them today. I'm going to tell them what to do. I'm going to come up with a plan. I'm going to make them love God. That's like you right now, right? I'm going to rescue them. I'm going to force them. I'm going to grab them and squeeze them like Lenny and of Mice and Men and just crush it to death. (laughs) Spoiler alert. Again, I'm ruining all sorts of things for you today. Movies, books, literary works of art. But some of us are so controlling. If you haven't read it, it's a wonderful book. Um, some of us are so controlling, and I think what, when we get involved in others' lives, we're quick to tell them what to do or what not to do, and we're not quick to listen. We think rescuing is controlling them. Or we treat them according to their ability to listen to our advice. I told them to do this thing. They didn't do it. And then sometimes when you ever get a bit in that trap, where uh, I've been in a situation in the past where a brother said to me, Drew, you can make that decision if you want. It's up to you, but I wouldn't make that decision. To me, that was, I can do what I want. So I did the thing that he wouldn't do. And then afterwards, he's like, why didn't you listen to advice? And I was like, hold on. Can we go back to the part where you said it was my choice? You know. But I know he was trying to disciple my heart, but I also felt like in that situation, you just you wanted me to do what you wanted me to do. And then when I didn't, you shamed me for it. That's not discipling. But a lot of us disciple that way. A lot of us try to help that way. I told them to read every day, he's not doing it, so and then we actually treat them with less love. Because they've not done what we said. And that's controlling. You know, we share our faith with others, but once something happens outside of our script, our schedule, we can't do it. We share our faith, but they can't fit into our very strict schedule, our very strict script of what an open person looks like out there. And we can quickly write them off as not open or I don't have time or it won't fit into my schedule or it just won't work. Because unless it fits our controlling nature, we are not going to go for it. We lose the ability to be able to deal. A controlling person has so much security in the, the bounds of their righteousness, the, uh, the limits the rules and regulations that once those are overstepped they have, controlling people have problems being friends with people who have different opinions and even different convictions right. they can't be friends with people with different convictions because it falls outside of their own view and they can't treat somebody with love even beyond their rules and regulations I think a lot of us are this way I've been this way um, the other option is we have controlling over here but how about over here we have someone who's distant someone who's Maybe you spend time with other people. Maybe you come to church, but you you don't really connect with them. And they may feel like you're more their project or you're their assignment and not really a friend. You're there, but there's no vulnerability. There's no connection. Um, But you're distant. Maybe you're distant in an emotional way. Maybe you're distant in a physical way that you just don't spend time with disciples outside church. You're literally distant. (laughs) What does he mean by distant emotionally? No, no, you're literally distant. You are not here. Right? That's distant. And a lot of times, when we have things in our life that we don't... Uh, uh, John 3 says, men love the darkness because their deeds are evil. When there's something in our life we don't want to talk about, we, 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 we obscure it in darkness. The Latin, actually, translation for the word darkness is obscura. It's just to, I I don't want to talk about it. So I'm not going to answer your text. I'm not going to answer your call. I'm not going to respond to you. I'm not going to see you. I'm not going to go to those things outside the body. And we can actually get really distant, and either way, there's fatigue. We get, If you're distant for long enough, you don't feel connected to anybody. And sadly, when people leave, it means nothing to you. Right. Did you know that 12 people have left the church in the last year? And That's not true, but let's say it is hypothetically. Let's say, oh yeah, that's just the way it goes though. Do you feel anything about that? Right. Or we're on the other end where we're so controlling that when someone leaves... We hound them, we hound them, we push them further and further away. We text them, we call them, we show, them at their, we show up at their house, we hide in their closet. We're, we're everywhere, you know, and either way, it's, it's, it's um, overwhelming and it wears you out. And you get fatigue and the inevitable conclusion is that we give up rescuing. We give up sharing our faith because you know what? It just hurts me too much. We give up talking to people in the church and discipling because it just hurts too much. So how is it? What's the real goal here? How can we rescue without getting fatigued? How can we rescue people without being controlling? How can we rescue people without being distant and cold? And just like people in a room on an assignment and not really friends and and brothers and sisters. You know, the the fight seems like, just like it was for Abram, the fight today is formidable. Can we really win it? And the people we're often trying to rescue look a lot like Lot. Lot. But they got issues, man. It's their fault. And I've tried. And We don't rescue like we should. There's an interesting character in this story. Do you see him? I think he's the key here. He's the secret. Do you see him? Melchizedek. Who's that guy? He pops out of nowhere. Out of a shroud. Out of a cloud. Out of a... Rhymes with that. Out of a mound. That's not the same. Rhymes. He appears, and he does this interesting thing. What does he do for Abram? He is humbled toward him. He gives him a gift, and he blesses him. Now, let me ask you this. What in the world did Abram do for Melchizedek? Not a stinking thing. Melchizedek's from where? Salem. It's Jerusalem. He's from Jerusalem. not Dead Sea. Why does Melchizedek humble himself, and why is he grateful to Abram? There's no reason to be. What happens next? So Melchizedek gives him a gift and says thanks and blesses him. Brings uh, bread and and, and wine. Who comes up next? Sodom king, right? Basically, what does he do? Now, what did Abram do for Sodom king, king? The king of Sodom? Everything. He brought your people back. He brought your money back. He brought your relatives back. He did everything for you. What does the king of Sodom say? Uh, divvy it up, half and half. Uh, you can take whatever you want. I got my half. Bye. It's short. It's, sure, it's, it's there's no feeling. It's an interesting connection. We have this interesting contrast of the king of Sodom and Melchizedek. Go to Hebrews chapter four. This guy Melchizedek is an interesting character. Uh, He's got a a psalm, Psalm 110, that talks about him. Psalm 110 mentions Melchizedek. Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. In Hebrews chapter 4, it's a very important passage. And a lot of New Testament Christians would interpret that passage messianically, basically about someone who was to come and be the Messiah. Now, it's important that we talk about the contrast set up by the king of Sodom, and and Melchizedek, the king of Salem. Because I think sometimes when people walk, especially when people walk away from the faith, or we reach out to somebody to evangelize to them, and they seem uninterested in God or even mean toward God and condescending, it can seem to us like, wow, they've really got it figured out. They're happy. They seem to be happier without God. They seem to be doing better without Jesus. But it's, and I think that's the lie that we can tell ourselves in our insecurity. It's the same thing that happened with Lot. When Lot goes to Sodom, there's this great tension in the scriptures of like, he's probably going to be doing great there with, his, with all his more, his more money, his better friendships, his new situation. But it's interesting. I think what, what we see from the text is that too often we love the things God gives us. We don't really love God. When we love the things God gives us, when those things are taken away, we fall away. I didn't get the things God said he'd give me. Sometimes God didn't even say it. We, We said it. God, give me this thing. Right? We don't really love God. We love the things he gives us. Read the book of Job, right? You think Job really loves you? Look what you gave him. Take the stuff away. See what Job does. But when we actually give everything to the world, when you move to Sodom, when you move to Gomorrah, when you say, you know what, that relationship outside the church is going to make me happy. You know what? Somebody in the church hurt my feelings. I'm gone. When you distance yourself, when you choose the world at first, yes, it may be what you want. But eventually the king of Sodom will come knocking without gratitude, without love, without connection, without empathy demanding more. It is never enough for the world and it will never be enough. The rat race, is it's never enough. You finish UVA, great, get a job. Get a job, great. Get promoted. Get, get a, a wife, great. Get a better one. Divorce her. You have kids? I kind of stuck with that one. I don't know. What do I do with my kids? Let's just keep moving up. Keep getting more. You think that situation now is really what's going to make you happy? No, the king of Sodom will come knocking. And he will say, give me more. He will not be grateful. He will not be empathetic toward your struggle. He will demand that you make more money, have a better marriage, have better friends. Then you'll be happy. The constant lie. And sadly, if you stay in Sodom long enough, most of us knows what happens. But then Melchizedek doesn't do that. Why does this guy show up and he's humble toward Abram? Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 explains. You know, let's read. Let's go ahead and read. Uh, Hebrews 4, 14. It's important to know that Melchizedek was a high priest and also a king. He was a rare combination of high priest and king. Verse 14 of chapter 4. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Let us then approach uh, God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Verse 7 of chapter 5. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. There it is. You know what makes... Melchizedek incredible is that he is grateful even for something he doesn't really deserve. People were fascinated by Melchizedek because he kind of comes out of nowhere. He has no line. He has no connection. And when people saw Jesus, they go, this guy's a lot like Melchizedek. Kind of popped out of nowhere. But you know what he's doing is he's not taking control. He's not becoming king. He's not forcing people to love him. He's saying, Do you really love me? Feed my lambs. He's saying, deny yourself, carry your cross. He's saying he's coming not as one who lifts himself up, but Jesus came as one who lowered himself. Jesus is able, in a a way that we struggle to be controlling, Jesus did not come to control the situation. He came to submit. Did you notice what the passage says? Even though he was his son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And with loud cries and with fervent, with fervent prayers and tears, he offered up his, his prayers to God. You know what I think helps people the most when they're going through a hard time? When we want to reach out to somebody who's a non-disciple, who's a non-Christian, when we want to help somebody in the church who's hurting, it is not that we have the answers. It is not that we control the situation. It's that we empathize. Jesus could empathize. The reason Jesus is a great high priest is because he knows exactly what you're going through. And that's powerful. Have you ever gone through something really hard and someone goes, I'm sorry for you. I'm sorry for all that. But they don't know what it's like. And you go, okay, thanks. But then someone else goes, the same thing happened to me five years ago. It was horrible. I'll be praying for you. You go, you know what it's like. I know, don't you? Isn't it the worst? What's the difference? Well, they've gone through it. When a high priest can empathize And how can he empathize? How about this? By offering up prayers to God where God says no. I prayed, but God said no. That's horrible. No one knows what that's like. It's not fair. You know who knows what it's like? Jesus. His prayers, God said, you want this cup taken away from you, Jesus? No. God ostensibly didn't answer his prayer, but he answered it. He said no. Jesus can empathize with you in every way, even to the point where he feels and is really rejected, feels rejected by God. How perfect is it that no matter what happens, no matter what happens in your battles, Abram won his battle, no matter if you lose, no matter if you win, no matter how many people come out alive, you have a Melchizedek waiting for you to be grateful, waiting for you to say, I know it was hard, waiting for you to say, I went through the same thing. You have somebody who loves you, that's what it is to be a Christian. That's what it is to live life to the full. Jesus is empathetic; he knows what it's like. How about chapter five? I just did that one. How about chapter six, verse nine? Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are not convinced of better, or we are convinced of better things in your case—the things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust; he will not forget your work. And the love you have shown him as you always, as you have have helped his people and continue to help them. He's saying he's not like the king of Sodom. He is not unjust. He knows what you're doing. He knows you're struggling. He knows you're wrestling with that. God is fair. God is empathetic. Verse 11. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end. So that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. The author knows, doesn't he? Don't give up. I know it's tempting to to stop wanting to help people, stop wanting to rescue, to stop sharing your faith. Well, it doesn't work like this. It works by being a friend first. It works by cold contact first. I don't know how it works. Go do it. Just share your faith. I don't care how Jesus doesn't care how if he cared how he would have told us how just go. It's not about having the most men. Abram didn't. It's not about being the most impressive. Abram wasn't. It's not about having a good week spiritually before you go do something good. Do something good now. I had a bad, you know, a lot of times we this will come up a lot where someone will be asked to speak in front of the church. And on Saturday night, they'll say, well, I don't want to speak because I've had a bad week spiritually. And I think they think that they haven't been good enough or a good example enough. I often tell people there's no better time for you to speak to the church because you're showing that this is not about you. It's about Jesus. Yeah, how about instead of wait, instead of perpetuating a performance mindset to the church? How about you perpetuate a humble mindset? I had an awful week. In fact, I don't want to be here right now. I don't deserve it. But praise God for Jesus. That's what this is. I can't do this. I can't do that. We'll never be enough. You'll never be enough. The day of your baptism is a day that you accept that. The only thing you offer to the waters of baptism is a dead body. You're dead. You're dying. But Jesus is not distant either. Jesus is up close and personal with the extreme, uncomfortable nastiness of your sin. To the point where He's killed by it, not just in physical death, but Jesus goes to suffer completely the same death that you should have died spiritually. It is a beautiful thing. And there's nothing more encouraging than knowing, you know what, no matter what happens, as I share my faith here with this stranger at the gym who's benching 400 pounds and who could possibly kill me if if he responds poorly to this. Either way, I have a Melchizedek. I have a priest waiting for me who's grateful and who knows what it's like to be rejected. Or if it goes great, it's just another Andre Gould. It's a friend for the rest of your life who you learn from. It's a guy who's, who's an incredible brother and an incredible friend. You know what? Either way. You know what? I'm going to call that brother in the church who I think might be angry at me. <laughs> or that sister in the church who I'm getting kind of a cold, a cold shoulder from. Because he, I'm just going to do my best. If I blow it, I blow it. If I don't, I don't. I just love her. I just love Jesus. He rescued me. How could I not rescue her? And then that's where we get. I want to close out with this this last idea here. The difference between Abram and Jesus. Abram fought of his own volition for the blood of his relative. Jesus fought out of obedience to his father for the blood of people who would spit on his face. Abram ran to the fight with 318 friends. Jesus stumbled into the fight with no friends, carrying a cross all by himself. Abram wins the battle and receives the spoils of victory. Jesus chose to lose the battle, and all he gained was the torment that your sins deserved. God chose to grant Abram victory, but God chose to deal Jesus' utter defeat so that you might have a chance at life, a chance at truth, a chance at true love, With your Creator, Abram drank the cup of wine and drank and ate the bread in victory. Jesus drank the cup of wrath. Not that God gave him; God gave Abram the cup of wine of victory, but we gave Jesus the cup of wrath to drink—the cup that he asked in Gethsemane, "Take this cup away from me." You know, Jesus knew, like anybody. Just like that guy in 1952 who knows if he heads into the storm with his little speedboat to try to save people, that he could die. Jesus knew that if he heads into the storm of our sin with his little speedboat, he will die. And that's not meant to make us all feel guilty so that we go, oh, you're trying to manipulate me into responding. What it's meant to do is wake us up to how much God loves He loves deeper than that job ever will, that girlfriend, that boyfriend. They can never touch Jesus. And the second you realize that, that's a daily thing, but the second we can realize that is the day we can live life to the full. Jesus was not distant with us. Jesus was not controlling with us, but he loved us diligently. He loved us deeply. And he brought us into the family of God. Let's go do the same. Amen, and to God be the glory.